Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. On the 13th of September, 1999, Gennady Slezhnyov, Speaker of the Duma, announced to the Russian parliament that a terrorist attack had hit the remote and hitherto unremarkable city of Volgodonsk. The bombing did occur, but not until three days later. But it was this incident, in conjunction with other bombings, that set in motion a series of events that salvaged the reputation of President Boris Yeltsin and laid the stage for his protege Vladimir Putin to come to power. But Slyasnyov's apparent clairvoyance wasn't the only indication that something more sinister was afoot. And many people believed the Second Chechen War was launched on the basis of a false flag attack concocted by Vladimir Putin. In this episode, I talked to the acclaimed journalist David Satter, formerly Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times and special correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He was the first reporter to detail what he believes was a bloody conspiracy to bring Putin to power and to plunge his country into war. Defeat the Chechen rebels and to stop their terrorism. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin now. Yeah, Russian snipers have been spotted high up in a building. Russia is not the enemy of the United States. By the late 1990s, any lingering hopes of Soviet-era Russia transitioning into a Western-style democracy were quickly fading. In a modern-day gold rush, corrupt politicians, businessmen and gangsters had seized control of the nation's utilities, factories and mineral assets. The ailing and frequently inebriated President Boris Yeltsin had suffered humiliation in the Chechen war and presided over the collapse of the economy. In May 1999, he avoided impeachment, but his days were numbered as accusations of corruption and cronyism swept through the Kremlin. There was a very real risk that not only would he lose power, but that he would be prosecuted and jailed. In July of that year, Russian journalist Alexander Zhilin wrote in the Moscow Pravda that elements of the government were planning to organise a terrorist attack in order to bolster Yeltsin and discredit his opponents, including the mayor of Moscow. He produced documentary evidence, purported to be leaked Kremlin documents detailing the scheme. But he wasn't alone in having these types of suspicions, as David Satter recalls. There were lots of rumours that something was being planned. Many people did not believe that Yeltsin would give up power, and it appeared that neither Yeltsin nor anyone that he selected had a real chance of becoming the next Russian president. Both Putin and Yeltsin had popularity ratings of 2%. Yeltsin was thoroughly hated in Russia. One could even doubt that there was anyone in the country who supported him, given the fact that in the average uh, survey, 6% of the respondents 
don't understand the question. On the 7th of August 1999, the Chechen-based Islamic International Peacekeeping Brigade, a powerful paramilitary force, launched an invasion of the Russian Republic of Dagestan. Ostensibly, it was a case of an Islamic Republic, emboldened by its success in the Chechen war, seeking to liberate fellow Muslims in the neighbouring republic. But almost immediately, people began to ask questions. Around the time of the invasion, the Russian journal Versailles published an article alleging a secret meeting between the Chechens and Yeltsin's representatives just a month prior. Journalist Anna Politkovskaya claimed that Moscow initiated the Dagestan invasion as a justification for a second Chechen war. She was later assassinated by unknown assailants. And in September 1999, a Moscow newspaper published transcripts of conversations between Boris Berezovsky and Chechen militants that appeared to show collusion in the run-up to the invasion. For context, a year earlier, Berezovsky publicly accused the Russian secret services of plotting to assassinate him. And in 2000, having been accused of corruption, he fled to the UK from where he later claimed Putin had orchestrated the Dagestan incursion with the intent of conducting a partial invasion of Chechnya and removing its unpopular ruler, an outcome that would have suited both him and the Islamic militants. Regardless of the causes of the war, with the economy in ruins and people lamenting the heavy death toll of the Chechen war, few in Russia were eager for another conflict in a faraway, largely Islamic republic. But that situation changed very suddenly when a series of bomb attacks struck the country. The first came on the 31st of August at a Moscow shopping mall. The second, four days later, destroyed accommodation housing Russian soldiers in Dagestan. The most devastating to that point came on the 9th of September, when 106 people were killed when a bomb was detonated in a Moscow apartment building. On the 13th of September, another apartment complex was blown up with 199 people killed. For David Satter, it was a matter of his worst suspicions being realised. I was suspicious from the very beginning. It was just too convenient. It looked as if Yeltsin and Putin were both finished, and suddenly Putin emerges as the military leader, a national hero, avenging the crime that was committed against the Russian people, and his popularity rating starts to soar. It just was too convenient. And then uh, I began to talk to people who raised doubt. These were people from the security services who were not entirely happy about the idea of innocent Russian people being blown up in the middle of the night in order to facilitate somebody's political ambitions. The reason why Putin was promoted to the post of prime minister and positioned by Yeltsin to be the successor was because Yeltsin was pretty much convinced that Putin would protect him. That was the whole purpose, and protect the members of his family. And that's what happened. It was on the 13th of September, the same day as the deadliest attack in Moscow, that Duma speaker Gennady Slyasnyov reported to Parliament that an apartment building in Volgodonsk had been bombed. Firebrand nationalist politician Vladimir Zhirinovsky demanded an explanation when three days later, the Volgodonsk bombing really did occur. 
but no explanation was immediately forthcoming. What uh, Selesnyov was questioned about it, and he said, well, actually, he was referring to an explosion that was connected to a gang fight in uh, Volgodonsk that happened on the 15th, which was two days later. It doesn't help us because it doesn't explain how he knew about a gang shootout or explosion in a, a small Russian provincial town thousands of kilometers away from Moscow two days before it happened. So his explanation raised more questions than it answered. So David, aside from the mystery of the timing of the Volgodonsk bombing, there was another incident that was perhaps even more shocking, correct? There was an attempted bombing that, that would have been the fifth bombing in the city of Ryazan outside of Moscow. That uh, bombing attempt was thwarted because people in the area witnessed some very strange activity and they called the police. But the police went down to the basement of the building and they found a live bomb with a detonator and a timer. Well, the bomb was deactivated, but the people who put the bomb in the building were caught and they turned out to be not Chechen terrorists, but on the contrary, agents of the FSB. That was explained as a, a training exercise. The FSB was testing the population for its vigilance. The population, of course, regarded this as absolutely absurd because you know they had lived through it and they saw that everything resembled a real attempt to bomb the building. And if it had been a training exercise under the law, all the local officials would have had to have been notified. None of them were. The people who carried out the bombing, they used a stolen car. They wouldn't have had to do that if it had been an official training exercise. The whole city basically was thrown into turmoil by these events. And it's hard to see why you would have a, a, a training exercise to test people for their vigilance at a time when the country was uh, in a state of total panic over the bombings that had already taken place. So it was uh, not believed. In fact, it was considered to be ridiculous. So critics of the conspiracy theory say that you've connected the dots of a series of odd events, but that there's no tangible evidence that the attacks were orchestrated by the Russian government. How do you answer that? If three people are caught placing a bomb in a building, the bomb is a live bomb, and it's identical to the bombs that blew up four other buildings, and they produce identification, and it's FSB identification. I mean, I would consider that to be direct evidence. Now, the other point is that the speaker of the Duma made a statement on September 13th. So how did he know that a building was going to be blown up in Volgodonsk three days later, unless it was part of a plot? Clearly, questions were being asked by you and other journalists. And over time, an increasing number of researchers, politicians and government agents, both Russian and foreign, have continued to point the finger at Putin. But at the time of the bombings, was there a sense among the Russian public that something sinister was going on? At first, there was quite a lot, but it died down and people got distracted by the election campaign and also by intimidation. The government began to clamp down on those who, who spoke freely to journalists. And there were a series of accidents that affected those who worked on a special committee that was set up to investigate the Riazanek incident, and people who tried to investigate or raised 
questions about what happened, one after another, were killed. So all of that had the effect of damping down, to put it mildly, the readiness of people to talk about what had happened. During your research, you sought information under the Freedom of Information Act to find out what the US intelligence services had on the bombings. What did you learn? I got very little. I got very little. I did file suit, but it was very important what I did get because it indicated that our State Department was fully informed about the suspicious nature of the bombings, but chose not to raise the issue. That decision led directly to what we have now, the war that presently seeing in Ukraine. Why do you think the US government were eager to keep any incriminating evidence against Yeltsin or Putin under wraps? I mean, I can only speculate. I think one of the reasons was that they feared destabilization in Russia. But another reason was that many of the people who were in charge at that time had insisted that Yeltsin was kind of the symbol of democracy and all we had to do to promote democracy in Russia was to back Yeltsin. Well, obviously, after a year and a half, or actually more than a year, I mean, after four years, well, we could even say after eight years of such policies, they were not anxious to admit that Yeltsin and Putin were involved in a terrorist act against their own people. The official investigations into the bombings tied the attacks to the Chechen conflict, although none of the men who stood trial were native Chechens. The individual who allegedly oversaw the operation was a Moscow resident born in the North Caucasus region named Kochiyayev. Prosecutors allege that after 10 years of running a construction company in Moscow, that he was suddenly radicalized by Wahhabi clerics and turned to terrorism. But former FSB colonel Mikhail Trepaskin found no evidence of Gochiyayev's conversion to Wahhabism when he was tasked with performing an independent inquiry. In fact, he uncovered evidence linking a current FSB agent to the sites where the bombs were detonated and learned that witness testimonies against Gochiyayev were made under duress. Trepaskin was jailed before he finished his investigation. Two other members of the investigative committee were assassinated. And one of their key witnesses, former government agent Alexander Litvinenko, was famously killed by Russian agents using the radioactive agent polonium. Coming up, we discuss the possible government involvement in another Russian terrorist attack, and David Satter shares his thoughts on Putin and the war in Ukraine. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to check out my catalogue for others. Here's a sneak peek of some recent episodes. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. That coronavirus is a work of God. As I often say, uh, UFOs took an interest in me before I took an interest in them. These officers would tell drug dealers they didn't care how much dope got sold. There were sectarian relations in Ireland, which had not abated since the 1690s or even since the 1640s. I left grad school, went to NASA so that I could put this telescope in space so that after NASA I could come back and use the telescope to get back to my original project. It straddles fantasy and reality. I went to work the next day to tell my co-workers and a co-worker told me about the UFO he had seen the night before. If you show me a church 
that hasn't filled their pews with divorce and remarriage and have young people fornicating. You show me that church. There were a number of spies and he named five different forms. I definitely knew I was going to be an astronaut. I don't believe that the New Black Panther Party is one of the large races or anti-government, anti-Semitic Hell, we've got it. <laughs> they were guinea pigs because they simply didn't have the understanding of what they were doing. People make all kinds of mysteries about this stuff. Some people say they had telepathic contact. It's the most powerful feeling you could ever imagine. There were four crashes within four hours in four different lakes. The military investigated all of them and never found the explanation to them. We, at the time, we really didn't know how humans would respond to those gene forces. When you have secrets, you're invariably going to have people who think there's a huge conspiracy at work. If ufology was a religion, Philip J. Glass would be Satan. You can call yourself anything. You can call yourself Pinocchio. You're not a Christian. You're a liar. We are still the peaceful people that was shipped over here. It's just, hey, we got guns too. It ain't so funny once the rabbit got the gun. In the aftermath of the Moscow bombings, Russia launched a second war in Chechnya. It was bloodier and far more destructive than the first conflict, with tens of thousands of civilian casualties and atrocities committed by both sides. At the height of the conflict, a group of heavily armed Chechen terrorists seized a school in Beslan. 1,100 people were captured and held as hostages, 20 of whom were immediately killed by the hostage takers. On the third day of the hostage crisis, Russian forces stormed the school, killing most of the terrorists. But among the dead were 333 civilians, 186 of them children. Recriminations quickly followed, with people both questioning the government's tactics and its failure to secure the school from such an attack in the first instance. While the identity and motive of the attackers has never been questioned, some people have pointed fingers at the FSB for enabling the terrorists to commit this attack, as David Satter explains. Well, the terrorists had all just been released from Russian prisons, and the access to the school was guaranteed by the Russians who removed all the barriers, and they ignored warnings that were called in. Uh, that the attack was supposed to happen. So this indicates to me this was a provocation, that the Russians may not have realized they were going to, to attack a school, but they had set them up to attack something and then they were going to destroy them. Apparently, they frustrated the Russians' plans, and instead of attacking the object where people were waiting for them, they, they attacked the school. But the Russians then set about to destroy the terrorists, but the terrorists had already taken hostage hundreds of parents and children. And that didn't stop the Russians. It didn't stop Putin. He gave the order to attack uh, the gymnasium where the hostages were being held with flamethrowers and grenade launchers, just as if it was an ordinary military object. People ask me, why? how can we explain the cruelty of the Russian bombardment of civilians in Ukraine? I mean, they've done the same to their own people. 
Putin has portrayed his military exercise, as he calls it, in Ukraine as some kind of preordained event and that Ukraine and Russia are bound together through history. And this is essentially restoring something that was undone at the end of the Soviet Union. Is this idea of Ukraine being integral to Russia something that is a long running theory within the country? Or is this something that Putin has just thrown out now as a way of getting what he is trying to achieve? We have to bear in mind that Russia signed a treaty of friendship with uh, Ukraine in 1997 uh, and affirmed respect for it, for its borders. Russia has many agreements with U- Ukraine and it's paradoxical, but they're still in force. And they all recognize the existing Ukraine within its historic borders. 2010, they signed a a leasing agreement for the naval facilities in Sevastopol in uh, the Crimean Peninsula. And that agreement was renewed in 2017. And the Russians were given permission to base their ships in what was clearly defined as Ukrainian national territory in return for preferential prices on the delivery of gas. Well, then, of course, they seized the Crimean Peninsula, which you could say rendered the agreement moot. But, you know, seizing Ukraine, dominating Ukraine, that was not a long-term, necessarily a long-term Russian objective. Putin himself said in an interview that Russians had no designs on Ukraine or on Crimea, for that matter. That was in 2007 with a German journalist seven years before they seized Ukraine. But what's really significant here is the fact that during this period, Putin's own power began to be threatened, first of all, by the democratic demonstrations in Moscow in 2011, and then by the spectacle of hundreds of thousands of people rallying in the center of Kiev against of Viktor Yanukovych, who was favorably disposed toward Russia and was a kleptocratic ruler, just like Putin. And to prevent Russians from getting any ideas from what was happening in Ukraine, what Putin did was launch a distracting maneuver. The point was to change the conversation so that people didn't think about Euromaidan and what it meant for them and the fact that it was possible to fight back against kleptocratic rule. They thought about how Russia was restoring its former greatness by seizing Crimea. And changing the conversation in that way, he strengthened the regime, and he did it for quite a long time. It was really what was called the Crimean effect, a kind of mindless euphoria, was still being registered five years after the fact. And that's what Putin was hoping to do in the case of this uh, invasion, but it didn't work out that way. The economic sanctions on Russia are obviously designed to have a crippling effect on the economy with the hope that it will force Putin into a change of action. But looking at history and thinking of the Versailles Treaty, do you think there's a danger that if the Russian economy takes a hard hit, it could have an effect on the people in Russia, much like the Versailles Treaty had in Germany, where all of a sudden we went from the Weimar Republic to the rise of Hitler, and potentially Putin may go, but we might create something worse? It's hard to see how the sanctions can make the political situation worse than it already is. What do we have in Russia? 
We have basically a dictatorship in which, which is dedicated to war. Are sanctions going to make it even more dedicated than it already is? I think it's dedicated to the maximum. I think the, the effect of sanctions could be in the other direction, to convince the opposition, if there is any, that Putin needs to be removed. That's what we have to hope for. Is there a realistic possibility of a coup and of Putin being removed from power? The people who have the ability to remove Putin are the military and security services, or they have the ability to force him to put an end to the war, to create a situation so dangerous for him that he'll feel he has no choice. But, you know, how many there of, of such people there are, how do they view the situation in Ukraine? We can only guess. There are lots of Russian news reports saying things like Putin will stop at nothing to defeat Ukraine, even if possibly that includes using nuclear weapons. Other people are saying that they think that Putin is wiser than that and may not go that far. How do you see this playing out in terms of Putin's mindset? Yeah, there are many imponderables here. They control the press, they control the media. The state media can take a defeat and make it look like a victory. It's not going to be a simple matter, but they can certainly try. It's hard for us to answer that question in the abstract because we don't know what the terms are going to look like. And I'm not sure what the Ukrainians will accept. We've got thousands of, of people who've been basically murdered. I mean, they were killed for nothing. There was no reason to launch a war. I think that uh, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, I think that the likelihood is that the outcome of this war is going to be determined on the battlefield, not through negotiations. Negotiations will register whatever is the balance of forces. But we, well, there's reason to hope that the Russians will pull back to a degree that can allow the war to end, simply because they'll be forced to, both by the brave resistance of the Ukrainians and we hope the effect of economic sanctions, which need, to, of course, to be increased. A great deal will depend on the attitude of the West and the, and the ability to be firm. Based on my experience and what I know about him, if he meets determined resistance and understands that he cannot prevail, he'll withdraw. His first concern is to preserve himself. Aside from his journalistic work, David Satter has written five books about Russia, including Age of Delirium, the Decline and Fall of the Soviet Union, which was adapted into a documentary film. More recently, he authored The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin. In December 2013, he was expelled from Russia, having been accused of violating migration laws, a claim that he denies and has widely been derided. Like many before and since, his real crime appears to have been his efforts to expose the true nature of an opaque and sinister regime led by Vladimir Putin. Well, stone the flaming crows, it's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.